you are listening to Single Service. My name is Arno Martire and I am your host. Single Service is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Kyle Brill is an interdisciplinary designer and systems thinker born and raised in Toronto. He studied architecture at the University of Waterloo, graduating with his master's in 2016 with honors. Kyle began his career working at architecture and product design firms in Toronto, London, and New York City, and became passionate about housing issues and urban development. He has a keen interest in understanding the social, economic, and political dimensions of how we build and thinks architects and designers should take a much more active role in developing our cities, which is what we're going to talk about today. Outside of his professional life, Kyle is an avid home cook, photographer, and writer with a mild obsession with history and science fiction. Uh, maybe you can tell me more about science fiction because I have a mild obsession about it too. So thank you very much, Kyle, for being on the show. Today we're going to talk about the housing shortage uh, possible solutions to it, and specifically the one you've been or, or ones you've been developing. Um, as a quick side note, I refuse to your, use the term crisis for two reasons. First of all, it, everything is a crisis these days, and the word has zero meaning or has lost all its meaning. And two, a crisis implies a major unforeseen challenge, which is not what we're dealing with. The, the housing shortage was not unforeseen and was predictable. And I believe predicted by many people, and you can prove me wrong. Um, but you know, anyone with the most cursory understanding of basic economics and the law of supply and demand would understand that. So um, it's not like the how the housing prices have shot up overnight. It was a slow buildup, and it seems like all of a sudden it's a, it's a revelation. Um, but anyone with open eyes would have seen that coming. Anyway, my rent's over. Um, so again, thank you for being on the show. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Arno. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Um, so can you tell us who you are, what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Yeah, so you are you already gave a pretty great introduction there, but I'm I'm Kyle Brill. Um, I'm first and foremost a designer, architectural and urban. Um, and I also work as a real estate entrepreneur, um, really focusing for the past few years on, you know, developing strategies to rethink how we build in our neighborhood context in the, in the GTA um, and thinking of new strategies for low rise intensification. That's great. So let's start at the beginning. How did you find yourself working as a housing developer? Well, I was really just generally fed up with watching all these issues unroll from the sidelines. I mean, people have been talking about housing issues in Toronto and 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 the GTA for a long time now, as you as you mentioned in the intro. And I wanted to really understand, you know, what really was behind creating this inadequate or challenging housing landscape that we're all facing. And I I thought a great way to do that would just be to dive in. And I you know 
combined forces with some two great colleagues of mine, and we did just that. Mm-hmm. And so, what are what would be your views on housing and development? Just generally, or uh, yeah, amazing. Well, yeah, I, I think we're we're really facing kind of a nexus of a lot of different problems right now. And there's there's really no one silver bullet to solve all of the problems that we're facing. I think I think there's a lot of layered issues. Um, and predominantly a lot has to do with uh I'd think negligent planning on, on on the side of the city and some pretty complex and ineffective policy um that have kind of led us to this position. And we just need more housing. Um, more variety of housing, uh, you know, not so much one type over the other. Everything has to come together uh, holistically for us to have a more sustainable future. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and as a quick aside, I was reading a, an article in Azur. Uh, it was an interview of um, Peter Clues, the uh, principal at Architects Alliance, mm-hmm. been probably the foremost condo builder in Toronto for the last couple of decades. And he had some really good points about why housing was so challenged in Toronto and what possible solutions were uh, to it. And the two that stood up to me, stood out to me, were that the one, the zoning and planning policies are completely out of date. Mm-hmm. They date back from an era where Toronto was basically. Uh, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but kind of a backwater town where not on anyone's radar, not the major metropolis it is today, where, you know, he was using as an example that, you know, it was a town where the bars closed at six on weekends kind of thing. For sure. Um, Which is far from what it is today. And also um, another solution that stood out to me is that instead of trying to build affordable housing, the because let's face it, governments are not really good at doing anything. Um, they're more inefficient than the private sector by and large. So instead of trying to build affordable housing, they would be better off uh, giving financial subsidies to people who can't afford market housing because you would have to put that money out anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you just give that money out to people who need it instead of you know, trying to build stuff and manage it, and, and it's it's a lot less complicated, and there may be efficiencies uh, there. Um, I thought those were interesting points, but I digress a bit. Uh, before my next question, is that is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think Peter Clues's comments are are interesting. I think I think Toronto, in a lot of ways, at least I like to think of it as being kind of. Uh, a city that's going through its adolescence or kind of coming out of its adolescence is sort of coming into its own. It's it's good dealing with a lot of growing pains. Um, and we're trying to figure out the best way forward. Uh, and I think a lot of the planning and zoning issues that we we really see come from the history of Toronto being an amalgamation of many different uh, individual municipalities, right? And, and the way we consider zoning and planning is so site by site and so individually oriented to each individual case that it, it creates a ton of inefficiencies and 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 just it's a bureaucratic nightmare to get anything done, which is why the government is so, you know, glacial with 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 making any changes. It would seem um, there's just unneeded complexity there, um, and uh, and yeah, I think I think we're coming through a, a very difficult period, trying to understand who we are as a city and where we want to go and and how we want to live and and build and build up. So, it's a very interesting time. 
So in, in pre preparing for this interview, you mentioned circular design. Can you tell us um, what it is and why it's important for addressing the housing shortage? Yeah, for sure. Um, so circular design just in general is is really a, a kind of methodology or approach to providing products or services that are suited to a, a circular economy. And so what I mean by a, a circular economy is is one that's, you know, composed of modes of production that are really built around reuse, um, you know, repurposing uh, resources and regenerating value over time uh, and, and to not have such a linear or extractive mode of production. And so when you apply that to housing, that really starts to speak to housing that creates new forms of value over time, whether that is in use, reuse, um, things that last longer, things that are not just sort of single use or transitional. So, you know, we have a, a there, there's a very common concept known as the housing ladder. Yeah. You know, you start in an apartment, then you move into a condo, then you move into your first family home, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's a very that would be an example of a linear housing model um, where you start at one point and there's an end goal and you're good moving to different types of housing throughout the whole process. But in reality, what we're trying to do at Proof and, and a lot of our thinking is around sort of bending that that ladder, creating a circle, you know, making housing that can operate and change over time to suit our changing needs and means, um, you know, as your life changes effectively. Yeah. And I think that's a very different approach to the way mm -hmm. people think about intensification, think about development. Um, we think about meeting a certain number of units per year, um, but we don't think about how those buildings necessarily will work in alternate densities or 10 years, 20, 30, 50 years from now. Um, and and that's just the, the the general gist of that thinking. And there's a great precedent for that. And it's just one example, but one that to this day stood out to me, although it's not in Canada, unfortunately, it's the um, several housing projects uh, by Alejandro Aravena in, mm -hmm. in Chile, where they built half a house for the, it was, I think it was social housing, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was disaster relief as well. There was a component. Yeah. And so they the built half a house with the other half uh, basically only having walls and a roof. And then that gave uh, occupants the ability over time to expand their housing as they, as they saw fit, both from a budget perspective and from a need perspective. And I, I like this idea because it also takes... Although here we like to think that everything has to build, be built by like builders and professionals, and and you could very realistically build a shell that's structurally sound, maybe with all the roughings for the services, and then let people you know finish the floors and the walls and putting their own kitchen. Um, if they're handy enough. Um, anyway, that that's a bit of a digression, but I thought that was a, an interesting um, segue to the idea of housing that evolves with people. And maybe there's other models I'm not thinking of. Yeah, uh, there there's a few um, around or, the world. Or modular housing that's pre pre designed to accept future models that can just plug in um, as needed. So there's I think there's ways to deal with that, but unfortunately. We don't see any of it here, um, and and a, a a point that comes up in many conversations I've had about housing too. A limiting factor is the way things are funded, 
Mm-hmm. And I think new housing typologies almost require new ways of funding it, new new financial models, because mm-hmm. the ones we currently have just don't work for to to don't are not conducive to allow people to innovate. What do you think of that? Absolutely. I think I think that's a really astute point. I think the sort of current way in which we finance housing, both from a development perspective and from an ownership perspective, are tuned to particular ways of building and particular types of housing. I mean, you know, the 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 mortgages that we have for for personal homes these days, you know, those are a relatively modern invention that I want to say, you know, has its roots in the 1950s and government backed uh, personal mortgages. Um, you know, those were financial in, financial instruments and products that were designed to to uh, facilitate the ownership of a particular kind of of house. If the house works differently, or if we want to build something differently, it's not necessarily going to evenly, you know, fit in the box of the of the mortgage products that we have and the the debt products that we have today. Um, and I think it requires, that's why I say it's not a, a, sing, a, a silver bullet solution. And it's not necessarily like a, a building design or construction related solution to deal with all these housing challenges. It's every layer of the of the system from financing to construction to policy. Um, so I would tend to agree. I think we need to innovate um, across the board. So in, in, the, in that context, what do you think are the most promising innovations or models that um you've seen or played with or maybe you've seen elsewhere in other countries that we should try to emulate financial innovations or or just general innovations uh in general financial or the way we build or anything else you can you can think of right amazing yeah i think we're and i've been very inspired by this notion of co-ownership or fractional ownership um and i think that that kind of that kind of approach, you're seeing it. Uh, you're seeing some uptick in it in North America. Uh, it's certainly more common um, elsewhere. Um, you, but it's basically what it basically, is. Basically, co-ownership is is the idea that you know you don't have to own an asset by yourself, a housing asset by yourself. You can enter a mortgage effectively with partners. It's like having roommates, but instead of paying rent, uh, you know you're all paying into the same mortgage. Um, and it helps it helps reduce the 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 financial load that a, a first time home buyer, let's say, would have, uh, you know, in putting down a down payment um, and making payments. Um, and instead of having tenants in their in their house, as an example, um, to help them with their mortgage, they would have co owners in their in their house that they would live with. Um, that poses challenges from the actual building design perspective because not all houses are designed very well to be shared amongst multiple owners. Um, so, so that's something that, that I think is interesting from a financial perspective. It also ties into, you know, new, uh, new trends around fractionalization, um, of, of, of assets in particular in the, in the crypto space, for example, people are talking about, about that, you know, tying digital currencies to real estate, but that's a bit above my pay grade. Um, other other innovations, really, from a building design perspective, um, you know, there's a lot of work in the Netherlands that's happening right now, specifically around this idea of adaptability of, of, of around around housing that can change. There's a whole movement out there called the Open Buildings Collective, um, with a bunch of architects and, and building and housing developers, which they're basically investing in housing as an infrastructure, something that could last the test of time, and the interiors of those buildings are designed to shift and change 
as as tenancies and tenures would would change um and it's it's really like a structural innovation structural system innovation and you know the way we consider building utilities um and if you could actually produce an open free plan that uh and give and give the owners the the agency to change the space as they need to mm-hmm. you it unlocks interesting some really interesting solutions um those are two innovations that really come to mind um but you're also seeing a lot of people get involved in co-ownership from a let's call it a more corporate perspective you have like co-investors who you know they'll help they'll buy the asset and then you pay them to gain equity over time so that's another that's version the, of uh, our borrow model Yes, that there, there, our our borough is is really um, more to do, from my understanding, um, with down payment assistance. So they they would own a, a certain percentage of of the home, and you would effectively make your mortgage payments, but they help you get into it at the onset. There's other models. There's a company, for example, called Key or Key Living, where where I believe that they you know um, they they own the asset outright, and then you rent it from them over time and access equity in it over time. Um, and they're kind of your your co owner partner uh, in that relationship. So there's a lot of interesting models coming out, and it's all in response to how unaffordable everything is. Uh, and and so there's there really is a lot of market innovation happening. Um, so th- those are innovations to alleviate the insane cost of housing. But um, I think we we need to talk about uh, what needs to be done to to reduce the cost of housing by. I mean, reduce maybe not, but at least preventing it from getting any higher. Um, mm-hmm. that's supply, right? So Absolutely. I think um, I'd like you to point fingers a little bit because I think the reason I'm I'm asking you to do that is because I think uh, knowing where the problem comes from and uh, holding the people responsible accountable uh, can mm-hmm. probably, is probably a, the first step in the right direction. So who in your mind is responsible for the insane cost of housing? And I know it's a very complex problem. So um there may be more than one answer but uh, i'll let you answer that as you see fit because i think it's important to talk about as well for sure um yeah it's really hard to point fingers at one person and obviously there's there's or one group but i think and there's obviously bad actors in every sort of you know uh component of of the housing problem but i think if i if i were to point one finger very broadly it it really comes down to policymakers i think i think um and and the amount of control that i think local politicians have over what kind of housing gets built and where i'm not saying that there should be no regulation around what we build um but there seems to be from my general observation uh, a large degree of decision making that's happening um you know amongst groups of people that are not necessarily professionally equipped to make those decisions and i and i think and I think they might have very well-intentioned political and, and policy motivations, um, but they're having counter counterintuitive effects, or not even counterintuitive effects, or having negative effects, just generally negative effects on producing the housing that we need. They're basically the policy we have is so complex and so layered and requires so much analysis for even something so small to, to be approved um, that you end up creating a process where the market will move. It will will create the certain kind certain kinds of housing that are just more financially feasible than others. Like what 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 I mean by that is, it shouldn't be as complex for to build a seven story building as it is to build a thirty story building. But the whole process is effectively the same. 
and, and many other people in the industry would say the same thing as I am right now. The, the, the policy landscape, it's too complicated. It's, it's, it's glacial uh, in, in, in how, in how fast it moves and we could be doing so much better. I mean, it, it also extends beyond the local politics. I mean, um, you know, from a federal perspective, even, you know, training, uh, like, you know, investing in, in training the trades, investing in construction innovations publicly, you know, we have a supply issue largely to do with land, land constraints and zoning, but a lot, a lot of it has to do also with hard costs going up. Um, you know, there isn't enough people to build the housing that we need. And so there, there needs to be a lot of investment. Um, I'd say that's probably a, a federal investment in training programs for 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 new building trades and for modernizing the construction industry um, to help you know ease that that labor gap. That's a um, very good point. Yeah, and I think the the policymakers the issue is that and and it's a very broad generalization, but I think it's largely true. Their incentives are not aligned with the public's incentive, and if we're talking about elected politicians, they're only looking for the next few years until the next election and to get reelected. Um, again, not saying all of them were that way, but most of them would be. Yep. And so I think as long as their incentives are not aligned with the public's incentive, we're going to have the same problem. Um, I don't know how you align those two. That's the real challenge and, and the real question that needs to be answered. And maybe the solution is to not let those policy decisions in the hand of elected officials, maybe it's professional uh, professionals like planners or whatever yeah. uh, that actually know what they're talking about. I don't know. And I'm just talking out of my ass here. But um, I think that's the that's the key is to align the incentives uh, because as, as long as they'll have self-preservation as their prim primary motive, Mm -hmm. They can say whatever they want about caring for their constituency, but I look at what people do, not what they say. And you just look at their actions and you see that's not aligned. Absolutely. So and if you, if you, sorry, go ahead. No, I just had one more thought that, that popped into my head as you were discussing that. I think, you know, I've talked about this with, with my colleagues as well. I think in Canada and maybe even in the North American context, we don't even necessarily have a discipline around urban design properly, like as it's done in, in other contexts around the world. I'm thinking again about the Netherlands, mm -hmm. where it's a, it's a professional discipline of urban design. Um, we have planners and they are, they do, you know, work in urban design issues, but they're really considering you know, uh, risk mitigation over the long yeah. term. How do you manage, you know, uh, you know, growth over time from a resource allocation perspective, from a tax tax base perspective, environmental concerns, et cetera. But they're not looking at it as a comprehensive design exercise that would necessarily involve many different stakeholders, both public and private, to create a kind of more comprehensive vision that, by the way, should be paid for by the government. Like mm -hmm. the, the government should be funding these kinds of studies um, to to actually comprehensively provide a, a clear vision forward that everybody can get behind. And I, I think that is the vehicle, a vehicle, uh, probably a very good one that could help align everybody's interests. Um, because design is, is really an exercise in, in, in communication. Um, and if you can't communicate your vision effectively, which I don't think anybody in 
the city <laughs> at a local constituency level has ever done, you know, then then you're not going to solve any problems. You're just yeah, gonna I don't even think they have a vision, to be honest. No. Or the vision is, um, yeah, stay stay elected as long as they can. Because you, you have to think about, I mean, this might be unpopular, but it's true. If you take a city councillor, they make, I don't know, let's say 100 grand a year. It might even be more than that. Um, and so that's a pretty cushy gig, even though $100,000 is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still a comfortable um, a comfortable wage. It's not to say they don't deserve it. Uh, it's not what I'm saying. But if if all you got to do is get reelected every four years or whatever it is to keep going and it's it's a it's a good cushy job that you know probably has a lot of benefits and pays well so yeah you'd be a fool not to try and get reelected and 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 continue living on the taxpayer's dime again not that it's necessarily a bad thing but we have to take that into account and 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 so um i lost my train of thought i forget where i was going with this but anyway that that's the incentive it's like um they need to be paid for the work they do and that's totally fair but maybe you know it comes with term limits maybe term limits it's one or... term or two terms so um when uh when you're done you're done you can't continue and so you have less of an incentive to pander to the people that are going to keep you elected and and maybe instead um uh, do actual things that are beneficial for the city but i mean if you look at other uh, political bodies like the New Hampshire State uh, Assembly or whatever it's called, they don't pay their members. They get paid a hundred bucks a year and and purely voluntary. Yeah, it's purely voluntary, and so it limits the the job to people who have the time and or the means to do it. Right, but it removes the financial incentive from the equation. So maybe you only get retirees or independently wealthy people, but they they don't do it for the money. They don't do it for. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's the solution, but maybe there's another model. Absolutely, I think I think people should very well deserve to you know dedicate their life to public service and get and get paid for it if that's if that's what they if that's what they desire. I just think it's a you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tricky how their, how their powers work and how the local governance works in, in Toronto. Um, and there, there should be more optimizations of how decisions are made. It, it really, it really is as simple as that. Um, and not giving so much control into such a, an even hyper-localized context, right. When we're dealing with issues that are so, um, inter intermingled and complex, um, you can't just look at it from one, one borough's perspective in the in the patchwork of of you know boroughs of a larger city it it, it doesn't work that way um you're going to run into sort of bureaucratic brain damage that way um which, which i think we're already experiencing we have been experiencing um yeah. so it's a really multi-layered problem for sure and i think maybe the another thing that came to mind is the the councillors are elected on a, on a very specific uh, geographical area maybe it's it's councillors at large that we need that are not tied to a particular neighborhood so that they they're less incentivized to respond to people in certain neighborhood and more uh to look at the city um yeah, yeah i tend to agree um 
So if you had a magic wand and you were tasked to solve the housing shortage and the insane costs, what's the one thing that you do? Like if you could do only one thing. Only one thing. Yeah. I think I would probably just just because I only have one one choice to make, I would probably eliminate restrictive zoning measures. I think it's kind of insane to believe that we should protect a kind of typology of housing and prioritize, you know, pre-existing character in the face of a changing city. I think that's irresponsible from from a civic perspective and also from an environmental perspective. Yeah, and I can't agree more because we have literally thousands and thousands of those Victorian narrow homes with the bay window in the front. They're literally the same in the entire city. And they're all more or less protected, or a lot of them are from a heritage perspective. But the reality is like, they're a dime a dozen, they're a commodity. So maybe you want to preserve the most significant examples of it because it's important. Mm -hmm. But to, um, yeah, to and, and I mean, that's just one issue, but to want to preserve all of them for the sake of preserving them, I think is foolish because first of all, they're not that pleasant to be in. They're very dark and narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the city is supposed to evolve where we need to tear down stuff to build bigger and higher and more dense. And exactly. um, I, I've used that example many times, but when I first moved to Toronto, it was almost 18 years ago, 2005, I lived in Chinatown. No, I lived in, in uh, first I lived in Kensington Market and then Chinatown on either side of Spadina. And I, it was baffling to me i i did not understand at the time that you could have entire neighborhoods of single family detached homes in the downtown core it just did not make sense Mm -hmm. um now i'm more used to it because it's been a long time but it still doesn't make sense like that's the place where you'd want to have density because that's where everything's happening it's where you have the jobs where you have the entertainment Mm -hmm. it's where you have everything in the center of a, of a globalizing international city, all power to you. But in some senses, that has to become an, a more expensive choice. From you know whether it's a because 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 what is what's the opportunity cost for the city of of protecting your right to have access to that house where it is right? It should cost you more. Whether it's property taxes, which is definitely an unpopular opinion. Um, whether it's property taxes, other forms of, of taxation, um, you know, restrictions on, you know, how much you could you could resell it for. I, I've, I have no clue, but it should definitely cost you something to maintain that lifestyle at the expense of other of others who can access the vibrancy of the downtown and, and a densifying internationalizing city. Um, it seems clear to me, you know. If you were to if you were to upzone everything, obviously you can't necessarily do that just with a uh, you know as 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 you wish. There needs to be some kind of phasing of that process. But if you're worried about your land value going down because density is going to somehow impede that, that's also just not true. Um, you know, if 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 someone if if your if your neighbor's lot can support an apartment building. 
it means your lot is more valuable because you, it has more utility. So somebody would be willing to pay more for your land because they can get more out of it. So if all they care about is maximizing their the value of their asset, then upzoning is actually in their best interest. Now that has to be controlled, particularly because if you just let it happen, like I mentioned before, all land just becomes incredibly expensive. Um, and then you'd have to, then there's issues, you know, even more so than we're seeing now. And then there's issues that would come about, you know, as to who has access to it, who can buy it, who could develop it. So there's a whole other slew of problems that would emerge from a simple upzoning uh, exercise like that. But we, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking that way. Um, but yeah, those just my, my, my two cents on what you were saying. Yeah. And I think it makes sense because, um, the, I mean, and that's a very North American, actually, maybe not some, but I think it's, it's very North American, maybe more so than elsewhere. Although, uh, real estate, uh, assets are usually where people stash their retirement yeah. money. Um, so I think that the balance, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate is that you don't want to make it so that it makes their assets less valuable, but like you pointed out, the, the common tendency is to think that increased density reduces the value of the land when all facts point to the exact opposite. When you have higher densities, land value increases, um, but there should be. I think to make it fair, because the say you, you've gone into the market 40 or 50 years ago, you bought a house for whatever, 50 grand, and now it's worth two and a half million. <laughs> Even if you account for 50 years of inflation, you're still like way ahead of the game. Like you're way doing ahead pretty well. Yeah. And I think the there should be a way to create incentives that push people to cash out. And I don't know how you do that. That's something, you know, economists and other smart people should think about um, and give up that land for more productive uses, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's like uh, no capital gains, even on second or third properties mm. or, um, a tax cre credit if you sell your property in certain conditions or whatever the case may be, because you do want to free up that land and push people who don't necessarily need or want to be downtown to cash out from their investments and, and give it up for, for other people to, to kind of mm -hmm. try and take advantage of the, the growth the same way they have. The problem we see is that you see, and that's the NIMBYs basically, is that they want to preserve the neighborhood because they think that if they do, again, contrary to all the evidence, their property is going to keep going up. It might, um, but it will go up more if you increase the density. So it, it, there's also a lack of understanding of how economics affects the whole market. And I think that's a very, probably a conversation for another, another time, to be honest. Absolutely. But again, yeah. we're, we're talking about incentives. And it also leads me to the next question I had for you about expectations. Um, right. My favorite Canadian journalists always talk about uh, the Canadian public having the wrong expectations on many topics, not necessarily just housing. But I think that applies eminently to housing because uh, people, and again, it's a broad generalization, but people want to buy a single family home make that their retirement fund, cash out when their kids are out of the house, 
and they can downsize to a nice condo and and use the rest of the money to to live off for the rest of their um, final years. But are those expectations reasonable to for everyone to have a detached home with a backyard, especially in a city as big as Toronto? Because if you really want that, you can go live in Peterborough or or King City or somewhere a little further out where mm-hmm. there is plenty of room and land is, is widely available. But uh, to me, it's it, it doesn't make sense anymore to 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 promote that as the main kind of housing typology in the city this big and this this pressured for housing. Right. I I I think that that absolutely we need to uh, to realign our expectations. I think in in most areas, not all. Like there's there's some area there's some areas in Toronto that you know could and perhaps are could arguably be protected at their current scale. They have historic value, etc. But I think um, you know largely speaking, we do need to reorient our our expectations around how we live. I think I think that's that's naturally going to happen and it is already happening as the way we live changes i mean housing always always evolves and adapts to suit um you know external pressures whether that's economic environmental uh etc um you know the victorian houses that we're trying to to protect were mass housing large in large part for a working class at some point in time um and it, it just it just has to do with with how society functions, you know, is reflected largely in the housing that we produce. And if society is changing at large, if we're going through all sorts of economic environmental transitions, the way we live and our expectations around how we live in a society also has to change. Um, so, you know, is it a, is it an expectation shift around typology? Is it an expectation shift around density? Um, I'd say it's more around density than typology. Because you can still live, like, for example, there are cities around the world where single family home ownership is still common next to, you know, much more dense forms. Like think of Tokyo as an example. That's a great example of a city that has, you know, people still a large percentage of people in Tokyo live in single family homes where they own their properties. Do they have do they have backyards? No, there's there's a much denser uh, Sort of population base and people are also okay way that. more flexible on the the uses allowed and you can have uh single family homes with a tiny cafe on the ground floor and you live above it or, so it's much more flexible in in the the usage that's allowed and and actually more mixed too it's not you separate housing from everything else which doesn't make any sense for a vibrant city anyway yeah absolutely I think I think you know what we're starting to experience too is is the sort of conflation of of domestic and work environments you know more and more people working from home um you know people running side hustles out of their house people renting it to other people to use in different ways it's just you know it it, it goes against a lot of sort of the modern mo- modern planning principles that try to neatly put everything into little buckets like this is where offices go this is where houses go this is where towers go and i think that kind of that kind of let's call it regime that kind of planning regime you know is not suited for the complexity of of the society that's emerging currently and i think there's going to be a need for a lot more blending of uses and types um to allow for a much more let's call it emergent 
form of urbanism that kind of is dictated by the way society works, which is something that you sort of see in Tokyo as an example. Um, again, Tokyo so, or Seoul or many other cities are, are yeah. in the world. And you used to see it in Toronto to an extent because you had a lot of those little corner stores. Yes. Uh, that have been grandfathered in. So if you're lucky to own one, you can still use it as commercial space, but you try to get it zoned as such today from scratch. Good luck with that. Awesome. And and some of them have been converted, you know, to, to be great restaurants or, or community amenities of, of that type. And, and we love them, but we can't build them. They're like, yeah. they're illegal. It makes yeah. absolutely no sense. No, so it's nuts. It's, it's contradictory. So yeah, I think I think we need to reorient our expectations. Absolutely, I think people need to realize that density isn't a problem, especially in a in a in a city like Toronto that is going to be popular and remain popular for for many years, um, and that, that's a an, an economic center. I think to 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 think that I can have my little tomato garden in the backyard that that never gets overshadowed by a high rise building for the rest of my life and my children will have that right and et cetera, et cetera. It's just, that means that Toronto has not changed. And that's something, and again, like I said earlier, that's irresponsible for a, in a, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. I'm going to refrain from commenting on that because I have neighbors, uh, some of them are really stupid and I've had <laughs> to deal with them on uh committee of adjustment matters. And it's just the shit you hear is just crazy. Yeah. Um, but we've all been through that, I'm sure. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. I think it was very interesting conversations. And uh I think we've we've answered you've answered all the questions I had for you. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience before we uh we wrap yeah. up? Yeah, I think I would really encourage people if you care about housing and you care about sort of the 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 future of the city to get involved in as many capacities as you can join a group like join the urban land institute or you know any of other variety of groups you know attend a committee of adjustment hearing if it's in your area if you're pro housing just go out and speak up it's important that pro housing voices are heard um and that a different a different future is possible i mean in in amongst my colleagues we like to say that you know the the future is not what it used to be um, you know, the actual the actual models that we have, uh, you know, in our minds don't necessarily apply anymore. You know, it might have they might have seemed like great ideas 10, 20 years ago, but it's not the case anymore. And I think I think a new a new better future uh, is possible. I'm, I'm hopeful for that. And I think it takes people getting involved and standing up for what they want to see, um, you know, to, to to make that a reality. So I would encourage everybody to do that. Um, if you care and uh, we can build a better future together for sure. Yeah. And I've done some of that, particularly the going to committee of adjustments to support neighbors. And it was a very enlightening experience. I'll just leave it at that. But I, I encourage people to do the same thing. Cause that's, if we have all become a little more civic minded, um, then we can, you know, you can make a change at a small scale, but if enough people do that, then it adds up, right? Absolutely. I believe in that 100%. Well, uh, thank you very much, Kyle. It was a great conversation and uh, hopefully the first of many. Yes. Thanks so much, Arno. It was great to talk to you today. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.